Today's scripture reading is from Luke 2, 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, uh, before I pray, I just want to double down on an announcement that Heath made about our, our week of prayer and fasting. Um, every year, the week of prayer and fasting is important. Please, please don't mishear me. Every year, we need to pray and fast and seek the Lord as to what he has for us as a community, as a church in the city of Vancouver, uh, for a whole bunch of things. I can list a, a number of things. Uh, my sense is, as we head into 2022, and all that's happening in our city, all that's happening in us as a church, uh, is that this week of prayer and fasting is perhaps uh, more important uh, than ever. So I want to encourage you. It can be a sort of abrupt shift to go from the partying hard of the Christmas season to like a week of prayer and fasting early January. I'd encourage you now to already think about how you want to pray and how you want to fast in that season. We're going to encounter someone who, who prays and fasts quite a bit this morning. And we're going to see her story and how it's impacted her life. So I want you to just pay attention to that as we open the text. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Would you join me? God of the universe, reveal to us in Holy Scripture, through the writings of the prophets, and the preaching of John the Baptist, you have called us to prepare our hearts for your visitation. And so ready us now to hear your word and to respond as faithful servants to the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Jake, and I'm part of the team. And I want to ask this morning as we begin, when was the last time you really, really celebrated? You really, really, like truly celebrate it. I imagine for most of us, in 2021, there hasn't been a lot of celebrating happening. Not a lot of big parties and, and sort of those grand events. Yet for some, for some, there has been much to celebrate this year. For some of you, a precious life, knitted together by the Lord, delivered safely. Uh, to others, the return of an estranged friend is worth celebrating. Still, for more of you, you're stepping into more and more, and increasingly so, uh, what God has called you to do at, at, at work, uh, in the home, wherever you find yourself, looking more and more like Jesus, and you're celebrating that, and that's good. Whatever your year has looked like, and we've had a strange year, haven't we? There is, I believe, this morning, however, a good reason to, to celebrate to be excited, to, to smile, to, to turn to God and say, thank you, God. Maybe even do a little dance if you're charismatic like that. Re regardless of your circumstance this morning, whether you're up or whether you're down, what we'll find in the text that Hugo just read for us is that we have reason to celebrate, to be thankful because Christ the Messiah has come. 
This week, as we go into our fourth and final Advent Sunday, as we look at our fourth and final response to the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, we will be invited into something. We'll find here an invitation to be caught up in the joy, in the celebration of another. We'll find an invitation to make her joy our joy this morning. It's an invitation to be caught up in the joy of one who, according to worldly ways of thinking, should not be joyful, should not be happy, should not be dancing. We find this morning an invitation to learn from the prophetess Anna what it means to find all we need in Christ, all we need in Jesus, this Messiah who's come. And so really simply this morning, we're going to do two things. We're going to first see Anna's story, and then second, we're going to see how Anna's story invites us into Anna's joy. Anna's story and Anna's joy. As you have a Bible, verse 36 to 37, let's read that again. If you don't have a Bible, take one from the back, keep it. If you don't have one at all, it's our gift to you. Luke 2, 36 to 37, let's read that together. We're here, we're awake, yes? Yes. Luke 2, 36 to 37, this is God's word to us this morning. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Who is Anna? Who is Anna? Maybe you've never considered Anna before. I, I certainly hadn't considered her uh, in depth until this week. Who is Anna? Well, we're told that she's a widow, a widow who has found herself in Jerusalem. Uh, Anna, as was the custom in the day, was married off at the age of 12, lived with her husband for seven years before he died, and she became a, a teenage widow at the age of 19. This is Anna. Uh, Luke is a gentleman, and he writes that she was advanced in years, right? That, that's a little, you know, you, you can use that now. If someone's old, like really old, he said, oh, they're advanced in years. Luke is a gentleman, right? She's old. Now, there's a bit of a debate as to how old she actually is. Is the 84 that we find in our text a reference to how long she's been a widow for, or is 84 her current age? We don't actually know. Has she actually been a widow for 65 years or, or, or 85 years? Either way, Anna is old. As gentleman Luke says, she is advanced in years. And for most of her very long life, in fact, much of her very long life, she has been a widow. Now, you might already know this, but to be a widow in Anna's day is not the same as being a widow in our day. When Anna's husband died, there was no insurance payout for Anna. Uh, her living at the temple, which we read about in Luke 2, was likely a much a physical necessity as it was a spiritual one. It was at the temple that she could find social services, as it were. Perhaps Anna even had a room at the temple where she stayed, right? So she was at the temple night and, and day. Either way, we can be sure here that Anna is not leading a glamorous life. 
It's not like her husband died when she was young and now she's kind of led a life of leisure and, and traveling and, and exotic, you know, whatever. No, she's not led a glamorous life. Becoming a widow is hard enough on its own, but, but a first century widow is something else altogether. Something probably really hard for us to wrap our heads around. Now, as I do each week when I look at the text, I found myself thinking a lot about what it would mean for me. And I thought this week about what it would mean for me to lose my spouse at a young age, to lose my wife. How would I respond? I didn't have to meditate long on the thought before I decided fairly conclusively that my response would not be like Anna's. That my response more likely would be like that of Naomi's. If if you don't know Naomi, she's another character we find in the Bible. In the Old Testament book of Ruth, we find this woman Naomi. She's, She's married and has two sons, Malon and Chilion. Soon in, in Ruth, though, her, her husband, Naomi's husband, dies. He, he, he's, he's gone. And to add insult to injury, her, her sons die quickly afterwards. And, and Naomi, we're told, despairs. Life is over for Naomi. As she says to her two daughters-in-law, go on without me. My life is, is over. It's, it's done. Naomi despairs. Yeah, I think I would have responded like Naomi. But Anna, Anna does not respond to life's tragedy like Naomi does. If you were to ask around Jerusalem, talk to the people in the know, what, what was Anna like? How would you describe her? What would they say? See, see Luke did this. He's a historian who investigated these very things, right? And Luke's summary of Anna that he is forced to put into his account of Jesus is this. This is how Anna was talked about around town, ready? This Anna, yes, we know her. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That's how Anna was known. That was her byline. In many ways, Anna is the ideal widow that we find in 1 Timothy 5.5, where, where the Apostle Paul writes this, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Night and day. What did Anna do? Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So who is Anna? What is the character sketch that we're left with this morning? Here it is. Anna is a widowed woman during a time in history where it's hard enough to be a woman, let alone a widow. Anna is a widowed woman who has taken all of her hardship and all of her pain and all of her trial and found hope and faith in waiting for the Messiah who would come. She's taken all of her experience and directed it in that direction towards Jesus, waiting for the one who Luke says would bring about the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is a picture of faithfulness. She's a picture of trust. Despite all that life has thrown at her, Anna is resilient. Why? Well, Because, as Paul said, she has set her hope 
on God. Again, as I was reading this week, I was confronted by Anna's resiliency. This type of resiliency, we can agree, is not a common characteristic these days, is it? I I think, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, people will look at our time in history and be like, wow, what a resilient generation. I'm not so sure about that. And it will sound insensitive, but trust me, I I don't mean it to be because I I see it in me as well. Something hard comes our way, and and generally, not all of us, but generally, we we, we crumble. We we, we collapse. Again, I was reading this past week of um, the aerial bombing of London in World War II, the Blitz. Maybe you're familiar with it, right? Some people read about other things, I read about World War II. And, and the Blitz during World War II, where, where each evening for almost 60 days, the air sirens would go off as men and women would either go to the bomb shelter, only to wake up the next morning to, to sweep up the glass and the debris and the rubble and do it all over again. For 60 days, London was, was, was bombed by the German forces. In fact, the bombing became so commonplace that people stopped going to the bomb shelter altogether. They just thought, eh. They chose instead to navigate the rubble and debris each morning as they made their way home in their dancing shoes. There's accounts of that throughout history. And the question I want to ask is, what kept the Londoners going during the Blitz? What kept them going? What kept them enduring? What made them so resilient? And historians will say this, that these men and women in this time had an unshakable hope that they would not lose to their enemies. Listen to how Blitz survivor Sylvia Joan Clark responded to being asked if she ever worried that Germany would win the war. And it's the most English answer you will ever hear. Ready? How did she respond? Would Germany win the war? No. No, she said. I never thought that. I am very proud to be English, and I thought they'll never beat us. Never. I had that in my heart that if I worked and I helped everybody, we'd get there in the end. I used to say this to people. It's no use being down. I had a home. I've had a mother. I've had a father, and I've lost them. But I've made up my mind that nobody's going to get me down. I'm going to survive And I'm to work hard and be proud that England will be England again. And we all want to be British. Clark had this unshakable hope that England will be England again. So much so she could endure night after night after night after night after night after night of bombs falling on her home. Friends, can I tell you something this morning? Anna had a greater hope. Anna's hope, our hope, was that God will be God again. Amen? That God will be God again. That the God who brought Israel out of captivity through exile would bring about once and for all the redemption of Jerusalem. And because Anna had this hope, Because she had this hope, she could wait. 
She could wait. She could wait. At the back end of the book of Isaiah, you find 26 chapters of hope. 26 chapters of hope. Hope that Israel will be restored. Hope that the the pagan Gentile nations will be reached. Hope that one day God's kingdom will come once and for all and make every wrong thing untrue. You find 26 chapters of hope at the end of Isaiah. And in the middle of these chapters on hope, we find this beautiful logic. This amazing logic. The, The Lord asks a rhetorical question to all those who would wait on him. To all those who long for him. He asks this. He says, brother, sister, friend, child, Jake, Paul. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. In our hearts, we don't say it, but in our hearts, we look around at the world and we conclude this, that God has forgotten. And if he has not forgotten, then he's not powerful enough to save, to redeem, to make new. We conclude in our hearts that the day is not coming, it will always be night. But consider the imagery with me of Isaiah 49. God cannot forget any more about you than a nursing mother can forget about her breastfeeding child. So using language that we, living in our tattooed age, can understand, God says, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Tattooing, at the best of times, right, involves what? It involves us putting on our body forever a a name, a face, a, a symbol that we never want to forget. And though we'll be old and the image wrinkled, right, and barely discernible, the hope is that we'll remember that which is so precious to us. Such is the way that God thinks of us. We are always at the forefront of his thinking. Always at the forefront of his thinking. If we're despairing this morning, he's thinking of you. If we're lost this morning, he's thinking of you. If we've given up hope this morning, he's thinking of you. But not only is he thinking of you, but he is actively orchestrating all things in your life to draw you to him. To cause you to every day put your hope in him. He wants to be your sole hope. I I can say with confidence this morning, knowing the mess that I'm stepping into when I say it, that whatever you're experiencing right now in your life is the Lord causing you to put your sole hope in him. He wants you to put all of your trust, all of your faith, all of your hope in who he is, 
what he has done, what he is doing now, what he will do at the end of the age. That's what he's doing right now. I don't know the details, and I don't doubt it's messy, but I'm convinced that that is what he is doing right now. We could ask this morning, what are you waiting on this Christmas? What are you waiting on? I want you to think about that for a second. How would you answer that question? What are you waiting on this Christmas? I think if we were to answer honestly, and I hope this can be a safe place where we can answer honestly, most of us are waiting on circumstances to change, right? We're waiting for someone who is really sick to get better, waiting for your kid to sleep through the night, please Lord, right? You're waiting for those pervasive and crushing feelings of loneliness and despair and sadness and isolation to pass. Maybe your waiting might be small. You're just waiting for like a Christmas dinner that is controversy-free, right? Where everybody is still smiling at the end of it. What are you waiting on this Christmas? Anna reminds us, however, that any time we wait, any time we wait on anyone or anything other than Jesus, we are doomed. We are destined for disappointment. I know, I know that a number of us have endured terribly sad things this year. The, the sadness, of course, in itself is not wrong. We learned this in our Lamentation series, didn't we? We went through that together as a church. But when our sadness is inconsolable, when our sadness is, as we say, irredeemable, does it not prove that we are waiting on the wrong thing all along? See, what was the secret to Anna's joy in the midst of her tragedy, in the midst of her loneliness, in the midst of her poverty, in the midst of her lack of security? What was the secret? It was this and only this, that Christ has come, that Jesus has arrived, that the hope of not just Israel and not just Anna, but indeed all of the nations has come in the Lord Jesus the hope for the lost and the broken, for the orphan and the widow, for the sinner and the saint, for the sufferer and the destitute, for the rich and the poor, for those in their right mind and those on the brink of insanity. Your hope is this, that he has arrived, that Christ has come. First Simeon and now Anna can depart this life in peace. Why? For our eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in all places, sorry, in the presence of all peoples. This is Anna's story. And because this is Anna's story, we're invited now to consider Anna's joy. Look back at your Bibles with me. Luke 2.38. Anna's story and now Anna's joy. Let's read that together. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I don't know if you noticed this, but, but reading this text this morning, especially in view of last week's text that Heath walked us through, one can't help but see the hand of God all over it. Right? 
Last week we read that Simeon came in the spirit into the temple at the exact moment Mary and Joseph brought in the child Jesus. Okay? This week we see now Anna coming up at that very hour. You're like, what am I looking at, Jake? Do you see it? God has sovereignly arranged every detail of Simeon and Anna's life to, to culminate, to crescendo in them finding joy in the arrival of Jesus. He has sovereignly overseen every part, every aspect, every victory in every very, very low valley. He, he's orchestrated all of that that they might find their joy in the arrival of the coming Messiah. Even Anna's ancestry seems providential. Look with me. We read that there was a prophetess, Anna, their daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. See, this, this name Phanuel is the Greek translation of this Hebrew word, penial. You might remember that penial is the place where Jacob wrestled with the angel, right? And Jacob, na Jacob names it penial afterwards because he says... For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Penial means face of God. Fenuel means face of God. And now, Asher, as you know, because we've all named our kids Asher in the past four years, right? Asher simply means happy. Let's put it together. Is it not right to say that Anna the prophetess, the daughter of Fenuel of, of the tribe of Asher, is truly the one who is happy because she has seen the very face of God in Christ. And so she gives thanks. So she gives praise. She is overcome with joy. Maybe it's like an awkward, exuberant joy. All of her waiting, all of her longing is found its answer in the small, bewildered child being doted upon in the temple. And if I'm honest again, if I find myself in the temple on that day, I don't know if I'm responding the same way that Anna responds. I don't know if I'm responding the same way that Simeon responds. I can imagine myself, and maybe you too, I can imagine myself looking at Anna like she must be crazy. In fact, one 16th century commentator, he, he said exactly this. Most of the crowd thought that she was a crazy old lady for certain. Not as nice as Luke. Advanced in years, Johan, right? Because she was saying such outrageous and unheard of things about a little baby. There is no sense whatsoever in Luke's account that a crowd is beginning to form. We don't get that sense. All you have here is Simeon, Jesus' parents, and Anna. Simeon, Jesus' parents and, and, and Anna. My count is four, five if you include the little baby Jesus. That's who's here. Presumably, there were hundreds of people present at the temple on this day. Religious people. People who knew the prophecies. Were Bible people. Good people. Upstanding citizens. And yet none of them reacted like Anna. How was it that Anna and Simeon alone, in a crowd of hundreds, 
saw Jesus for who he truly was. I want to say two things. First, and it should not be missed, Anna and Simeon's ability to perceive the true identity of Jesus as the consolation of Israel, as the redemption of Jerusalem, was a gift of the Holy Spirit. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit. These are spirit-filled folk, right? People interrupted by the grace of God, right? This given, not discerned, but given divine revelation. First Simeon, and now Anna, right? Anna, this prophetess. But having said this, and this is especially true with Anna, Anna was able to welcome Jesus as her true joy because her heart was already set on him. Her heart was already waiting for him. She longed for Christ. Again, Luke describes her as a woman who centered her life around the temple. Again, in Luke 2.37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. It's interesting to note, maybe you know this already, that Luke ends his gospel with the disciples, having seen and touched the resurrected and now ascended Jesus, these disciples doing exactly what Anna had been doing her whole life. How does Luke end his gospel? In Luke 24, And the disciples worshipped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And what were they doing there? And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke wants us to see that the disciples, and he wants us to see in Anna, that our joy, friends, our joy is directly related to our desires. Our joy, and this will sound so obvious, is directly related to our desires, right? When I was a kid, I would spend October and November doing one thing, and one thing only, and it's looking forward to Christmas. Wasn't bothered with Halloween, you know, that was child's play. Christmas was when, you know, if you're a gifts person, things happen, right? And so for two months, I would obsess over a toy, And this is pre-YouTube days, so there's no, like, watching other small children unpack toys and and talk about it, which is strange. This was, like, catalog days. So, like, circling again and, like, circling it again. Really, the catalog is all you can do. Just circle it some more. It's very excited about this toy. For two months, I I would anticipate this joy, this this gift that would come on Christmas Day if my parents were, were, were true to their promise. And to me... Joy to the world was sung each Christmas, not during the Sunday gathering, not on Christmas Eve, but on Christmas morning as I received my king wrapped in paper. But you know how it goes, don't you? You know how it goes. Soon, sometimes even on Christmas Day, my joy would fade. And I knew that next October, the cycle of desire, joy, and disappointment would start all over again. This cycle of desire, joy, disappointment occurs all the time in our life. Sometimes even happening hundreds of times in a single day. Desire, joy, disappointment. 
Having set our desires on that which will not satisfy, we nonetheless, we stop up our ears and persist, right? We, we go ahead, blinders on, only to be first pushed further into our despair when that joy fades like a cheap plastic child's toy. Christ City, it's, it's not a complicated sermon. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our joy. Everyone else in the temple that day went home disappointed. Every other person, hundreds of them, went home disappointed on that day in the temple. Anna did not. Simeon did not. And that's why their joy is the only joy worth sharing. And I'll end with this. You might not know this, but Anna is one of the first Christian evangelists. She's one of the first Christian evangelists. One of the heroes of the faith. Luke says this, She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You can imagine that, that Anna is now that annoying person in the temple. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about him? Have you heard about him? Have you heard about him? Remember when you first came to Christ and you talked like that? Right? Have you heard about him? Anna's that person. She's one of the first Christian evangelists. And this Christmas, you will once again find yourself sitting across the table from that family member. That friend, that lonely neighbor you invited over, who does not have Jesus' joy. And you're asking yourself already, what will I say to them? What will I say to them? Here's a temptation. What you'll want to say to them is maybe something about Christian doctrine. This truth about God that is good and right and glorious. Or, perhaps you're a bit more culturally relevant, right? You're pretty cool, and you want to speak to them about a cultural or social issue from a Christian perspective. That's what you want to say to them, right? But if we're being honest again, is it not easier to do those things, share truth about a doctrine, talk about social perspective from a Christian angle, is it not easier to do those things than to share with them our joy? Because our joy needs to be ours. I can be abstracted from my body and talk about a Christian doctrine. I can live up here, believe me, ask anybody on our team, I can live up here. But when we share our joy with someone, our delight with someone, it, it, it oozes out of us in a way that is so winsome. Might I humbly suggest that the best thing you can share with your friend, your neighbor, your family member, that person who does not know Jesus, this Christmas is your joy. Is your joy. It's hard to fake joy. In Mark 5, Jesus heals a man with many demons. You think you have a lot of demons? This man has many demons. Many demons. He was a man with many demons. And now somehow, somehow, some way, think about this, this man has to go home for Christmas, right? Let's just pretend with me. He's got to go home for Christmas. And he has all of his like, nosy aunts at the table. Oh, he's changed, right? His friends are there. They've noticed something different about him. He's got to go home for Christmas. What, what, what should he say? What, what, what should he talk about? Jesus makes it simple for him. And he makes it very simple for us. In Mark 5, 19, we read these words. Jesus says, 
to the man healed of many demons. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This Christmas, what message will you bring with you? To your dinners and to your outings, to your large parties and your intimate gatherings, in joy, tell them, tell all what Jesus has done for you. In a Christmas sermon entitled Going Home, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he left his congregation about to be scattered around the English countryside for the holidays. He left his congregation with these words, and I leave them with you as well. He says, go out. And as you go out, you are not to begin to take up doctrinal subjects and expatiate on them or explain them and endeavor to bring persons to your peculiar views and sentiments. You are not to go home with sundry doctrines you have learned lately and try to teach these. You are to go home and tell not what you have believed, but what you have felt. What you really know to be your own. Not what great things you have read, but what great things the Lord hath done for you. Go enjoy Christ City. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. And tell all that you meet that in Jesus, your joy and your hope has been fulfilled. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, we confess this morning that our hope is often misdirected. And that that misdirected hope often is the cause of our despair. So we need you to come by your spirit and point us in the right direction. We need you to come and take our eyes off of ourselves take our eyes off of our circumstances, take our eyes off of all those things which weigh down on us, and to put them on you. I do pray, Lord, that as we go around this province and, and, and further away, that we would go with the, with the hope of what you've done for us, that we would go eager to tell others of how you have changed our lives, that we be sharing our joy, our joy found in you with all we encounter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.